Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> right, so yeah, welcome to the, the next episode in, in the Ronin podcast series with myself and Chris. Um, today we're very, very lucky to get the Weightlifting House gentlemen in. So we've got Seb and Josh both from Weightlifting House. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. No problem at all. Yeah, thanks for having us. As I say, it's been um, quite a while since so I met Seb, well, two, two years ago now? Two, just over two years, yeah, yeah. And obviously been listening to the podcast since its inception, so like, not to sound too fanboy but massive fan of the podcast and what we've been doing. Like, so we were going to just basically touch on the influence of, I think, on all of us to a certain extent, to, from anyone who's been watching any level of weightlifting, going back to the cow strength boom times, obviously you two have had a, or had a very direct relationship with Glenn Penley. Um, and very interesting to find out sort of Glenn's philosophies, thoughts, processes. Um, obviously you got to, lift with him face-to-face said and I think you did as well didn't you Josh and training camps yeah so I mean from how Glenn would do stuff how would he break down sort of sessions moving forward and training philosophies mantras so on and so on Uh, Josh do you want to tackle that first yeah I can kind of interject what I think you know Glenn chose to do and why he chose to do it I think a lot of it revolved around who he had as, as lifters. That's kind of how he designed his program. Um, typically with American weightlifters, they're older when they come into the game, they have some sort of background. Um, they have a certain personality uh, style in that, you know, typically when they come into the gym, they want to go for, you know, heavier lifts. They want to have fun. They want some variety. So it's not incredibly organized. It's not the traditional kind of Russian model where they take them from, you know, beginning of their development all the way until they're a world champion. It's, it's kind of like you just get who you get and you have to accommodate them, uh, life stressors um, in that, you know, maybe they broke up with their boyfriend or girlfriend the night before a big session um, and, and really they're not able to train properly because of that. It's really impacting how they, how they operate. So he was really focused in on like, how can I train who I have and how can I make them the best that I can make them? And I think that's how he ended up designing kind of his, his training program, obviously understanding training principles, right? How to get people strong, how to teach people how to move properly, understand the techniques. Um, and, and obviously that's a big rabbit hole and I don't want to go on for too long, but, but. I lost you at the end there, Josh. Oh, you can, you can go ahead. I got you. I got you now. Yeah, I lost your audio briefly. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. I think, I think that Glenn sort of went back to very much first principles with the way that he programmed. So he didn't, he didn't just start off where most other people were, were, were at, basically. He, he looked at the system that was in place, like Josh said. He didn't just say, okay, this is what weightlifters needed to do. He started by analyzing the personalities of the weightlifters that he had and then built a system that kind of framed those personalities and use those personalities to, to their advantage. Mm. So where, you know, and this is something that's covered in the book, where, where the Soviet Union countries were able to predict how an athlete would act or train in six weeks because they could basically, you know, uh, accommodate every single variable because they controlled the lives of their athletes so much. And where the Bulgarians were maybe, you know, they knew that they would have a thousand athletes and they, they could you know, they could injure 990 of them and then have 10 world champions. Glenn very much looked at his athletes and thought, well, these guys can leave whenever they want. There's no monetary incentive. 
So we need to find a way to get them to want to train and to compete. And so I think ultimately competition was the driving force of what Glenn did in that he always thought that the best program essentially was getting three people in a training room, one who lifts slightly more than one of them and one who lifts slightly less. And whatever happens in that training room will probably be the bigger driver of, of progress and anything that the coach can actually write. And then coupled with that, he had a great understanding of physiology and he basically always believed that you were never strong enough. So a mixture of that competition and these, these heavy singles basically to compete daily mixed with this you know, relentless strength progression that really didn't change a whole lot and didn't really lend itself particularly well to online programming because it was just, once you'd done a month of it, you knew how it was going to go for four more years, but he just didn't care. With these, with these sort of the, the touch on his strength stuff, was it mostly sort of like different hybrid versions of the Texas method that he came up with? Or was it more just, 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 because I know he was, and I've heard you guys talk about it before, he was massive on fires, mm -hmm. which to me sounds like, well, death, terrifying. I don't want to do it. I don't like anything over one. Yeah. So where was he sort of like, without giving the too many secrets away, obviously because of the book, but like, again, the fives, the tens, it's something that Chris has been touching on with a lot of our Ronin lifters right now. A lot of them are going to be pushing for fives and tens now. Mm -hmm. so where was his sort of thought process behind that? Yeah. Well, Glenn, his squat routine, if we call it that, actually devolved from the Texas method in that the Texas method was, three days a week, back squat, front squat, back squat, um, volume on one day, kind of a, like a medium intensity on another, and then a high intensity, high intensity session at the end of the week. And I think a lot of that also was predicated, and this is a lot of his programming philosophy, is that he was in the room with the athlete, and maybe they, you know, maybe they didn't look super good, so they went for you know, a 3RM or a 2RM instead of a 5RM. Uh, maybe they looked really good, so they went for a heavy single. But uh, when he ended up changing that for, for, you know, what I saw on the online team, it ended up being twice a week, uh, like a linear kind of model in that it would start with a high, higher volumes uh, the first week. And as the training cycle went on, it would go down a set every week uh, from five sets to four sets to three sets and then a five RM. That was built within an eight week training cycle where the first four weeks were predicated on building the squat, testing. And then the, the last four weeks were focused on the lifts themselves. So like snatch, clean and jerk and, and variations. And he, he also did, um, you know, with the creation of the online team, this is actually something that Chris and I spoke very briefly about on Instagram was just his use of going from absolute intensity to relative intensity. And I think, you know, when he was programming for people in person, he could very much see, okay, this person is very good at doing higher reps or, or doing reps with a higher percentage of the one RM compared to this person. And he could program accordingly. So he could say to someone like Kevin, who maybe, you know, Kevin Cornell, who can rep really well, you know, really close to his one RM, he could say, okay, five by five at 90% for you. Whereas for someone else like John, it's going to be 80%. Mm -hmm. But then as soon as you have an online team and you start the progression at 80%, that's basically near the five by five rep max for some people. And it's just starting the progression for the other so he realized, okay, I've got to start writing as a percentage of a rep max. So we're going to start off with 90% of your 5RM for a 5 by 5 And then suddenly that, like, that equates everyone back to, to you know, ground zero, basically, and you can start climbing from there. So, yeah, it kind of went. Mm -hmm. Oh, Seb's disappeared just for a second, I think. Yeah. I'm sure he'll click back in again, hopefully. Yeah, there we go. 
coming back. This always happens. I'm sorry. I'm it back for good. Well. I saw it <laughs> half it as well, and I was so quick to to, to <laughs> connect again. Apologies. I, I, I basically finished what I was going for there, but just you know, the introduction of relative intensity over absolute for most of his strength work, um, but never really got into it in the in the snatch and clean and jerk stuff, which is what Chris and I were kind of talking about on Instagram. Was you know why why didn't he program? five by two at 90% of your two RM in the snatch. And I don't really know why, maybe that would have been the next logical step that he would have taken. Um, but yeah, he, he just about got there with the, with the back squats, front squats and, and snatch deadlifts. What sort of like um, success rate were you seeing with some of the online clients with that slight change up? Did it work really well with them? I, so from what I would see is that the training, it, it was really weird how, you know, you, you do really well the first training cycle so you'd hit a massive five rep max PR. And then to me, it got really stale really quickly because it was the exact same thing over and over and over and eventually switched to triples. Um, but, you know, it's crazy how people would run the exact same squat program for months and months and months. And, uh, you know, they would not do anything and then pop off for another big PR. Mm -hmm. um, and that just kind of shows how counterintuitive training can be sometimes. I mean, you can run the same program five times and PR the first time and the fifth time. But, but regress every other every other training cycle. Uh, but typically from what I would, would see, and Seb, you can comment on this, the people who would do really well were people who adapted to training really well. They're typically people who were strong early on. Uh, you know, they had a good athletic background. Um, you know, in, in high school, they were already moving big weights. So they had already mm -hmm. clean and jerked, you know, 50, 60, 70. They responded really, really well. Uh, typically, it was the people who were kind of intermediates that saw, you know, a little bit of progress, not quite as much. And then beginners, I don't think the program program lended itself super well to technique work or developing technique. No. So, you know, they, they get by, but they just run into the same problems over and over and over. So that's how I saw it. Um, mm -hmm. Seb, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, Glenn was, you know, to some extent in his own echo chamber where he, he was you know, um, driven almost by the selection bias that occurred just from him having good athletes. So because the athletes were good, they tended to be the sort of people who could adapt very quickly to a stimulus and then, you know, and then recover and get better almost week to week, month to month. And so the athletes that stuck around with him were the athletes that were doing particularly well. And so he started programming even more to accommodate to those athletes uh, so yeah, I, I think if you're someone who turns up to Glenn and you have terrible technique and you're not particularly strong, he's not the coach for you. If you're a good athlete and you have a kind of, you know, a natural ability to be kind of strong, but you're already moving pretty well, then he's probably the best coach because he's just, he does things outside of programming that make you better at weightlifting that you don't really think of. And that's like the competition side of things the forcing you to eat, the forcing you to sleep side of things that really makes the difference in the 80% of the time that you're not actually spending in the gym that give you that, you know, the 80, 20 rule that give you that extra 20% of progress. So he was a phenomenal in-person coach and he was getting better and better on the online stuff by moving towards this relative strength progression. But, um, but yeah, I think if you're a talented athlete, he's great. If you're, you know, just a random person, you'd probably in some cases do better with an in-person coach and just jumping on the Pendley Ward online program style of things. It's an interesting thing you bring up because obviously I heard again on your podcast with bits and pieces where when you went to the camps, like you guys were 
just looked after. Like the, the foods was just on point. Everything yeah. he, he smashed that home. Me and Chris, I, I think Chris jumps in the same problem with our athletes. It's um, sort of banging home to them, like being like recovery, foods, rest, all these things are so massively important. Mate, the, the boys are <laughs> the fucking worst. The boys are <laughs> awful. Like the girls are usually like, if they like down to like, if it's their time of the month, they'll tell you. So like, they're going to be like, I'm not going to maybe be able to hit as big a left or like my brace position is going to be off. What's um like Ian, you'll know who I'm about, Ollie. I'll come and be like, I don't, I don't know why I can't hit a one rep max today. So like, what's happened the last few days? Oh, well, I've been on longer shifts. How long? Ask, oh, like nine till nine. Oh, okay, cool. How long? Four or five days. Have you trained this week? No. Right, yeah. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's just getting some lifters to be more aware. But I think mm-hmm. the whole thing of, that's interesting you say that with Glenn, where it's like, if you're a good athlete and you have a good base and you're quite talented, he's the right person to push you on. Mm-hmm. I feel like in England, there's an abundance of the opposite kind of coach where it's kind of like someone who needs lots of volume, lots of technique work, like a punishing amount of technical volume to then make like a two or three kilo gain in their lift after a couple of months. Whereas I always felt like it's the opposite way. Well, you can see like with the squat program, it would be like a month or two of nothing, then two months of just everything going up very quickly. Mm-hmm. And even my Olympic lifts are going up with not, I'm not really, do, I'm going to be honest, I'm not really doing that much of them. I'm doing them two or three times a week. Whereas I see a lot of other people who I talk to about programming, about their training, where they're saying, oh, you should do more volume, or you should do more of this. It's like, no, that's not how I work at all. But I think you need to have more coaches like Glenn, because there's actually a lot of people who are surprisingly talented. Like when you actually look at them and like have the patience to watch them move around and train, who then get put on a program that set them up for six months to PB at the end. And they just get bored and you just and you end up just wandering off because you're like, I'm bored. I don't understand what's happening. Whereas the people who actually like, who are really into weightlifting, who aren't, I say, aren't going to be that good. It's going to take them longer to improve. Like, I feel like there's less of them than there are of people maybe that are a bit more like me or like some of the people in, in the gym here where like the first time, there's, a, there's like, I think three lads in here, the first time they got shown a snatch, they could just snatch 70 already without really yeah. fucking knowing what to do. And then first time they squat, it's like 120. Six months later, it's 90 and 160. Do you know what I mean? So yes. it's like there needs to be coaches who know how to deal with, with people who are naturally athletic and need to basically be almost, not entertained, but be like kept on it yeah. so that they actually feel like they're, they're progressing. Mm-hmm. It, this, yeah. So this is a really interesting topic. And uh, it, it was kind of spurred on by Chad Wesley Smith, the, the power lifter we had on. He mentioned having some sort of stratification system with coaches. And I, I read this, uh, this paper that was, it was more like theoretical and they were talking about coaching expertise and they actually stratified coaches into four different levels. They mentioned, you know, coaches who worked with youth athletes or kind of like uh, teenage athletes and then adult adult or uh, senior athletes. And they talked about having a recreational coach and a performance coach on each level. So recreational coaches with the youth performance coaches with the youth, recreational and performance coaches with senior athletes. And that's exactly what you're mentioning. You have a recreational coach who works with people who do it for fun. Maybe they're beginners. Uh, they haven't had a lot of, you know, experience in different sports with different, uh, you know, movement strategies and figuring out how to actually move their bodies and, and perform basic, uh, basic abilities. Uh, they don't have a strength base, anything like that. And then you, you go to the other end of the spectrum with performance coaches who, they're looking after your nutrition. They're looking after how, you know, you prioritize stress management and all these things. So they, they approach it from, you know, two different, you know, aspects of, of prioritizing one, keeping someone in the sport and making them have the abilities to specialize later on. And then someone who can take people who are specializing like yourself, Chris, who really talented, uh, you know, moves really well, has the technique and like Glenn can make them really, really good weightlifters, not just really good athletes. 
So figuring out that sort of system and then just uh, also not being ashamed of passing athletes on from say a recreational coach to a performance coach or having some sort of system in place to actually, you know, prioritize the athlete and not so much the coach's success, which is where people get stumbled up as they think, you know, I developed this athlete. I should also get some sort of recognition instead of, you know, I, I'm good at developing youth. Maybe I should just do that and then pass them on to, you know, uh, a Ray Jones or a Max Ada or something like that. Interesting you bring that up because I, I went, Chris knows the history, I think Seb does as well. I, I was very, very, very fortunate to come across a very talented athlete. I started coaching her and then within six, and it was early doors within my coaching career. And I've, 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 I don't know if you boys know, I, I came from quite a, a rugby background as well and coaching there. And I very quickly realised that I'm going to continue my coaching journey but I'm hitting a bit of a barrier here. I'm like, I'm not 100% sure about this. Yeah. And she, he was a very good 48 kilo lifter. She's an absolute freak. And I went to a competition and um, several now, but I don't, I don't think you'll know him unfortunately, Josh. Uh, uh, Keith Morgan was at the competition. And he just came up to me straight away afterwards, like, is this your lifter? I'm like, yeah. He goes, would you like to bring her down to Crystal Palace and train with some of the, uh, the, the elite lifters there? And I'm like, in a heartbeat. Just yeah. for the fact, because I knew that my, where my skill set was at the time, it's, it's going to hinder her. And it's not about me, it's about her progressing as a lifter. So I'm like, yeah, do you mind if I come and watch? She's like, no, no, come and lift. I said, no, I'm there to listen and learn off you. You're a GB coach. You're a GB uh, competition coach as well. So this is a great learning opportunity for me to watch you coach her, let her lift with some of the absolute killers we had in the country at the time that were training there in Mercy, Forest, all these other people there at Palace she can then see what these guys and girls are throwing around and I can learn. Mm -hmm. and having, I think it's one of these things sometimes in a, in a coach to be that, to understand that process that you need to sometimes just go, stop, hang on, pass over. And it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Well, I think mm -hmm. but at the end of the day for the, for the better of your athlete or your lifter, sometimes you do actually have to sort of take that sort of pride pill and go, okay, cool. Because at some point if she kept going, they were going to take her off me anyway. Mm -hmm. She'll end up with Cyril or Dave or, or um, Andy Callard or one of these guys and girls. At least that way I can like slowly sort of release the reins as such and let her sort of see that. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a massive thing, I think, as well. It's something that we, like Chris says, you don't really see it over here that much, that sort of style of coaching. Mm. Yeah, I think that's just the, you know, there are pros and cons to being in the kind of society that we're in. And essentially what we have, you know, living in this capitalist country is we basically have a free market with regards to coaching and athletics, which is great because it does, it, it can drive coaches to learn more to try and outcompete other coaches because you're not all getting the same amount of money from the government. But it also means that there is this like internal need to hold on to talent that you have because you can't let it go because essentially your athletes to some extent our future it's, it's like it's a future salary for you if you yeah. can hold on to them well and it's very i don't quite know how you could do it where you could have a society where like ours where we can have our own coaching we can have our own gyms we can have our own athletes but then we're still willing to somehow pass on athletes to other people and say i am the best at coaching athletes for the first five years of their career and i like no one can beat me on that but i'm just going to pass my athletes on at that point and I, quite how you get to that point, I don't know. And I, like, I, I'm not sure I could do it, but I feel like that would ultimately be where you'd want to, you'd want to get to. And you'd want to have coaches who, who are like 
for not like Glenn, someone like Glenn who would say, okay, you're a great athlete. Come to me in five years, but for the next five years, go and go and train with Ian, for example, and then come back to me. Um, But having coaches that friendly to be able to do that and trust each other is, is tough. I think like not to speak for Chris as well, but I think we're very lucky in the the setup we've got in Ronin where when me and Chris when Chris spoke to me about coming on board and doing bits and pieces like I said to him at the start, so the first thing that like one of my big drivers was used junior weightlifting and stuff like that and a little bit on the master side of things. But the, the structure that we're slowly building within Ronin, which lends well to that kind of system, I think now, because if you look at it from a, a bottom-up procedure, if we do get a youth sort of junior lifter come through, I can say I can sit there and work with them, get them to that point now. Now with Mehmed being more and more involved, yeah. he is in in our world the Glen of for us, if that makes sense. Is that mm. we can teach them all the basics and get to that point. And when it comes to someone who needs to give them that final polishing, that final sort of touching on certain bases, Mehmed is that sort of quality of a coach now. So I would like to hope that we're at Ronin, we're going to start building something like that within our systems. Of if we do suddenly find an athlete that is freakishly good well Matt I think it's just the case well I know that we've had so me and Ian have got a few clients that we've swapped so I think there's like a few people who either don't gel with me and then I've handed them on to Ian because like I just can't get them any further and a few of them are actually it was just masters athletes who want to train like they're full-timers so I'm going to train them like they're full-timers but they're not so then I've handed them on to Ian and then I think at some point, I imagine when some of the listeners you have developed it might be a case if you hand them on to make space for more because you'll get busy but I think when it comes to sort of making it serve, as you were saying, you've either got to have that ego where you're like, I've got to hold on to this lifter and you've got to get better quick. So instead of, let's say, we've got, what, so we've probably got, what, maybe three or four guys who are like getting onto the 140 mark and snatches and 170 mark and cleaning jerks. Like, I can either hand them on once I get them to like 140, 180, because that's about where I am. Or I can go to Cyril, I can go to Stu, I can go to, I can read Glenn's book and you can go and learn and ask, how do I get these people further? Because most, for the most part, especially here, weightlifting coaches that you are quite sparse. So finding one that you like is also quite difficult. So if you find someone, you're probably like, I know a lot of people like this. We've had some people who have come to us because they finally left a coach that, a coaching relationship that hasn't worked anymore, but they've stuck with it for maybe a year or two too long because there is no one else. So I think from that standpoint, either you need to create more coaches and encourage more people to get into coaching, which is up to BWL and the national governing body to make it easier to get into coaching. Well, not easy to get into coaching, make better coaches, or it's up to coaches who exist to make it so that there is a pathway. So for us, if a youth lifter comes in or someone who literally doesn't know what, doesn't know the difference between a 15 and 20 kilo barbell is, Ian takes them, make sure they know what, what all the different positions are, what all the lifts are, um, what platform etiquette is, all the stuff that you need to know when you're a beginner. And then maybe as they get better, then he hands them on. And then any beginners that I get, I hand them to him. So you have a pathway where you have a constant turnover. But mo- for the most part, and again, I don't know what it's like in America. I imagine it, it could even vary state to state like it does with everything else. But um, you might have it where like some coaches will feel like it's scarce, like clients are in scarcity. Like the people who are going to go to the Olympics, like you're going to get, every, like some coaches will never have, even have one long enough to be able to develop them close to that but athletes who are going to be good at a national level you can get a lot of people who get to national level and maybe get a medal like there's enough people out there so if you lose one because you have to send them off to a national training center or to someone else there's two or three more other people you can bring in and that's down to more advertisement and also not panicking that if you lose one person that's it like you know if you've got like 30 people in your club and two of them go off to train with someone else because they're more advanced it doesn't mean that you lose two people it means that there's now space for you to bring someone else in and then continue the production line and that's what it should be 
Like, clubs shouldn't be a case of, oh, this is Crystal Palace and these people train here. This is Ronin, so-and-so trains here. It should be a case of, oh, this club has a really, really good reputation of building lifters to X level. This um, club has a really great reputation for building, um, like, you know, you get some clubs where they just have loads of supers, but for just for whatever reason, they build really good supers. They cool. build really good. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? Though? But that's like, it's the same as like, that's what happens with rugby in England. Like, there's... Um, yeah. Uh, Rotherham. If you want to be a good front row, a front row player, a type five forward, and get a contract, you go to Rotherham for a year. And um, it's almost like it's literally like you will get to the Premiership from Rotherham. But they don't hold on to players; they just go. We'll develop you as far as you can. You get an offer, that's fine. And yeah. I think it needs to be the same with lifting coaches. Either get better so that you can keep a hold of people, or you've got to hand them on because you'll also get a bad reputation for holding on to people and holding them back. And then it'll be like, oh, that's that club where you know, oh, so and so used to lift there. It could have been really good, but you know. Just we had a bit better coaching, you know. You know, I would never want to be that bloke. I would feel terrible if someone could have been going to the Olympics, but then I didn't hand them on. So then they just ended up the same numbers, and then they quit. But that's that's what I think needs to be avoided more often. Yeah, hundred percent. And it forces you as a coach to work harder than you ever would do for fear of messing up with an athlete. Like for for me initially, because I was both like coach and athlete to myself. I never like. The, the amount of the amount of books and just podcasts that I consumed to try and make myself better was something that I would never have done if there was no pressure to have done so. And then when I actually started coaching and I had other athletes who I recognized had significantly more talent than I did, it was like, well, I, I have to always know more than them, like about everything. And if I don't, I have to be honest in that, but like that, that pressure drove me to continually learn even more do the podcast, get more people on, ask the questions that I wanted to know for my own like selfish sake. And now I don't really do a whole lot of, you know, coaching and, and I, I just like the fact that I know some stuff. But I think to some extent like it does also drive you. But what you guys have done is been able to separate out who the coaches are and what their specialities are, but within a system. So you're not actually losing someone because everybody's under the brand of Ronan you just get to move them from one coach to the next, which I think is actually a really nice system to have and probably one that ought to be adopted. So the coaches can specialize, but within an umbrella of something that ultimately you own, rather than just giving them away to another coach on another side of the country, which just, it just doesn't sit well with coaches. It's just not nice spending that much time on someone and then them, you know, totally leaving. But yeah. Yeah. And I hate to take control of the podcast because um, I know it's yours, Ian and, and Chris, but I, I've been listening to the Ronin Strength podcast, and you guys have talked about the the coach you guys work with. His name's name. His name is uh, Mimid. Yeah, Mimid. Yeah. Okay, and you guys talked about him having that obviously training uh, background from from Bulgaria, and I know Glenn has obviously a similar influence. So I'd like to hear about the differences between the two, um, and and what you guys have changed in terms of your programming with his influence. I mean, Chris, you take the lead on this one first because it's. Um, I think your your side of it's intense with mine. Um, I think the the key to remember is that I think I remember I met when I met Mavis for the first time. So this wasn't like nothing was progressing. I think I was going backwards at the, at the point I was at, and he took like out basically just like two like no, two pages of a notepad and started writing down everything. And um, the actual program that he was on for six months out of the year, so six months out of the year at regional with like your actual coach, three months with Ivan for the biggest comps and then you had three months where basically he said fuck around but I know he's not fucking around he's doing actual training it's just not as anywhere near as like awful as the stuff that I would have made him do 
but six months is literally like a Russian system where like you're doing two sessions a day, but the first session is sprints or accessory work on mobility. The next mm-hmm. one is weightlifting. The next day it's the same. You do accessory work in the morning of whatever it is you need to do. Then you'll do blocks. And the next day you'll do accessory work in the morning, maybe squats or whatever. And then you'll do hangs and then so on and so forth. The training was incredibly varied, but it was still quite intense. And that for me is like trying to explain to especially some of the guys that we train with, um, you know, built differently. Some of them have adopted like the Bulgarian system for powerlifting or for weightlifting, but it's like, but no, you're not doing the whole thing. You're just doing the end portion that sounds fun. And the actual like build up to it, it's still got that kind of like brutal, like cutthroat. You need to do this volume. You need to do this weight. You have to do this. There's no excuses. You have to do three hour sessions. You have to do excess weight. You have to do this. You have to do this into it. But it's very much, we're going to look at you from every angle. We're going to do pulls from every position. We're going to do the lifts from every position. We're going to find out where you're weak. And then we're going to hammer those positions home. And it was just very much a case of always trying to make sure that there was some variation in your training so that you can see where your weak points are and then shore them up, do the excess work, do the variations of the lift. So then when you go to Ivan, it's almost like you filled up your cup because he's going to completely mm. deplete it. If you go there and you haven't done this block of training in six months, the three months you won't get through it. You'll, you'll, you'll literally just break down and, and the body parts will snap off. Whereas the training that you do beforehand where you're doing conditioning, you're doing jumping, you're doing like machine work, you're doing core work, you're doing different snatch positions, you're doing tempo stuff and everything. It builds you up. So then when you go specialize, you have enough in the tank. And that for me was what was the most interesting because most people think it's, oh, Bulgarian, I'm just going to go and snatch a clean and jerk every day twice a day and back squat and front squat every day twice a day and I've basically I've done both versions now I've done the Ivan version way before I should have like when I I think I've been waiting like two years yeah I did it and it worked really well I couldn't jerk so my jerk went nowhere my snatch and clean were wonderful though and then um I basically did the Russian style system kind of afterwards accidentally because I was still playing rugby and stuff I kind of did that and that's where Mehmed was very adamant it's like you have to do heaves it's like how many pull like i think you'll ask how many sets of pulls have you done this week you need to do more you need to do them for this position what's your deficit snatching clean and jerk fight you haven't done it through it's okay let's have a look at where it's at for a triple that's unacceptable we need to work on this position so he's always trying to find the weak point so then when it gets to a month out of competition he's like right you're just going from the floor every day now and you can have one day of powers if you're tired quote unquote tired basically if you can't hit your openers mm. you can go to powers and that was to me that is the difference it's still that kind of very Soviet system of you're doing this and there's no excuses, but it was the variation that led into the actual specialization at the end for me that made the key difference that made it all make sense as to why it would work. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like a lot of people, I don't quite know why this is, at least I noticed it in the UK in terms of positioning and deciding what variation of a lift to go for there's not a whole lot of thought often that goes into why we're doing a certain position and what the point of it is. And really you almost need to watch someone go and just do a normal lift from the floor to see at what point the technique breaks down and then analyze whether that technique is breaking down because of technical misunderstanding or there's a muscle that is actually just lagging in strength. And then, like you said, Chris, then just hammering whatever it is that might build that up. And sometimes it might be that you have to hammer a technical aspect that could be like a no foot snatch. Or it might be that the reason your chest is dropping is because you have weaker quads and it's actually that you just need to do, you need to hammer an assistance exercise to strengthen a certain part of the body. But I think I, I just happen to have seen, at least in the UK, it probably goes on elsewhere, just a lack of thought that goes into deciding what it is that we're going to hammer and why we're going to do that. Um, but it's, it certainly seems like he had that like nailed basically. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes you have to bridge, you know, having a very 
um, specific reason with also just keeping training progressing in the right way. So sometimes instead of just saying, you know, we have to do blocks because we've been doing blocks, you, you know, maybe uh, you come in one day and you just, you just want them to PR something. So you just pick, you know, position or movements, uh, like you said, that you haven't done in a while. You want to see where you're at, uh, see if you can put some kilos on it. You know, maybe you just make, make a complex up, uh, power clean, power jerk, split jerk, um, you know, maybe do an overhead squat afterwards. Who, who fucking knows? But uh, the key is to one, have purpose to training, but also training progress. And, and a lot of that comes with the variety that you would see in like a Glenn Penley program or, or something similar is it's kind of direction, but also you just want a lot of wins along the way to keep people invested, interested. And then, and then also like having that fire every time they come in to, to try and hit a PR or, or push the weights a little bit more. It's nice to have the mental win. Yeah. Like, it's for me, like, I think sort of like, I think you guys, through lockdown, I just went into a hole of squatting. And then just to have, and that Travis Mash every day program I'd done, I, I, every session I walked away with a mental win. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was completely refreshing. And similar to sort of like the, the program that Mehmet gave me where he really took me away from, like a lot of people only see sort of like the end results of my snatching recently and stuff like that, where they see these, 120s going up but they're not seeing the stuff that I've done for 14 weeks before it and it's the mem me was like you're really good at doing singles so let's max your triple and I could I'm like no I'm not doing it and got to the point where I think at one point on, on one of his things he got me pushing fives off the blocks and I snatched um 100 for five off the blocks and almost had a heart attack <laughs> things that he he sees at a level he's like you're good at this. Let's go here. Like he says with Chris, he just picks. He's 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 incredibly. His eye. I've never, even from like from a rugby coaching perspective, some of the coaches I've been there. I've never seen someone with an eye as detailed as him. Mm. He just literally looks at you, downloads it, and he's like, "Bang, right, you're doing this." And it's just like, "Hang on, I need to watch that in slow mo for me to understand what you've seen." And I'm not. Said you've seen me lift, and so it's Chris. I'm not fast, so it's like for him to watch Chris and just go like that. We did a training session last week, and it's like. It just downloads it and gives you the, that feedback straight away. And it's, it's unbelievable to see mm. someone at a high level deal with someone like Chris. It's like I was pushing at Chris for a long time to see Mehmed. And it's, I think it's the game changer that's going to push Chris up to another level personally myself. So. But yeah, he's, um, he's, he just brings a different level to my, from my perspective on a lot, a lot of things. But it, like Chris says, it's the, the little things that you don't realise where you're weak. And like another thing Mehmed said to me was like, I'm strong in so many other ways, but I'm weak in these ways. And it was my core strength, my back. Um, my back was always a big problem from rugby where I broke it. And he went, I went away and worked on these things. And now I'm seeing the fruits of that sort of pushing through. Like, I don't know how long that will last. Um, I think Chris wants me to snatch 130. Then I'm telling him I'm going to retire. Um, we'll see on that front. <laughs> He's shaking his head. You can't, you can't fucking hand up all 160 to your nipples and, and not do 130. <laughs> it's, 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 it's criminal. It's absolutely it's criminal. Mm-hmm. We'll sit there after yeah. to do pull. I will panda pull one fifty, one sixty off the floor. He's like, I can walk under that. I'm like, yeah, you're twenty seven. I'm. <laughs> Gosh, don't move that fast, mate. Oh mate, it just upsets me every day to watch it. When you say he'll send me a clip of him doing a panda pull, and it's like he says, like, oh, I'm getting into it. It's like you're literally like this, yeah, one sixty, <laughs> and your knees are bent this much. <laughs> and it's like, oh mate, just like, just can't, just try and go under it. Try and go under it once, like from block, so it's safe if you get crushed. But just once, just try and dive under it, just once, just the one time. 
just for me. Just, 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 just jump head through and just go and just go from one, there. One time. Well, yeah, because you'll, you'll just like, if it falls on you, the block, it will hit the block first. It's fine. Just try it one, one, one time for me, for Christmas. One, one time. Christmas. One time. <laughs> All right, fair enough, mate. That's good. Yeah, but like I say, um, overall, like, he's, he's a massive influence across the board, especially also from what I also like about Mehmed. And uh, the, I was very, like I say, very fortunate back a couple of summers ago when we did have Glenn down in Chelmsford, mm-hmm. that he, if you show him the investment into him, he will give you everything. And he's, uh, and, and Chris and me are the same thing. It's like, I, I, I will listen, I'll take on board, I, I invest into you, and then all of a sudden he gives it back. And it was remarkable when I met Glenn for that first time. Obviously, I know it was a seminar, but I was lucky enough to sort of like, we walked down to Tesco's and stuff like that, and I got to pick his brain and just straight away, just information, information, information. It, was, it wasn't, I see a lot of coaches now are like, Again, losing athletes, stuff like that. They're very scared about sharing information. Like if I see, like we had a couple of new lifters turn up on um, Saturday, and I'm like, well, yeah, we'll just show you what to do. Well, don't, don't need any money. Let's, you like that. Okay, cool. Then come back and see us. Mm-hmm. But how was that Glenn all the way through, like with everyone that just sort of jumped in and showed a passion for lifting? He was just there ready to share the entire world with them. I, I think pretty much so. Like he... His goal right from the start was always to put an American on top of the podium at an Olympic Games. And, and that was like his North Star. And so because he always had that like in his view, anything that came his way, he could basically ask, does it put me in a position or does it put anyone in a position to get closer to that one thing? And if it doesn't, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And like to, to a savage degree where like he you know, there were even members of his family who you basically didn't know because they didn't aid in this one goal. But if you turned up and you were wanting to get better at weightlifting and you're willing to put in the time, he would, he would give you money, he'd give you a place to stay, he'd buy you a barbell, he'd give you shoes. Like he would do anything he could to make sure that you were in a better position um, to, to achieve that goal and help him achieve that goal. So he yeah, I mean, he, he's like a weird juxtaposition of the most generous, kind person and then the most brutal person if you don't fit in with his, you know, with his goals. And and we saw that a few times where, you know, we'd be out just in public and if someone is bothering us and, you know, they clearly don't know anything about weightlifting because why would you? He's just not a nice person to be around particularly. And, you know, you'd hear him on the phone trying to get something done where... <laughs> Yeah, Josh remembers where these people were trying to build him his new website. And I, I actually had a word with them. I said, Glenn, you just can't talk to people like this. It's just not nice. Um, but but alternatively, like if you wanted to come to a training camp and you couldn't afford it. And, or like I even remember someone saying, I love your bars. One day I'll get one when I got the money. And he just said, I've just sent you a bar. And like that's going to be a few hundred dollars of cost to him. But because he knows that this person might have some talent, He'd much rather they had a bar and he didn't really care about the money because the money was just a tool to get him closer to that goal, which was putting an American on top of the podium. So, yeah, if, if someone turned up at the gym, they couldn't afford it. They, he wouldn't care. They'd be in, you know. To a certain extent, like Donnie was the closest he got to with that, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I wouldn't say so. I mean, Jared, like there were, there were lifters oh, who placed yeah. higher, actually. Like Jared Fleming placed higher internationally, Tatum, Cooper... Um, Donny, Donny, Donny was his best friend for sure, uh, and the athlete who probably understood Glenn's programming the most, or it did the most of it. But yeah, he had, I think he had more talented lifters. Yeah, that's for sure. I think, I think if Jared Fleming hadn't got hurt, he could have been like, oh, he, he could have been like a seventy-five, yeah. two ten 
sort of 96 he, kilo lifter. Snatch 70, didn't he? The, the American nationals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that was just top thing. off. That celebration was just something else. Yeah, that was sick. If you did that in this country, they'd just, they'd, <laughs> we wouldn't go down well at all. No, no, no. And then, and then, he, had, um, then he had a lifter called Addison Jones towards the end of his career who, you know, is just a guy from Kansas who just happened to be squatting in a gym, didn't really know much about training, and was doing sets of 10 at 180 kilos, pausing at the bottom of the squat because he didn't know that you didn't pause. And uh, Tyler, um, what was Tyler's last name, Josh? Uh, Tyler Smith, uh, coach at Mississippi Weightlifting, sort of saw this and was like, well, you need to start weightlifting. And then Addison, Addison said, well, I'm, I'm off to Kansas. Like, like, I can't do loads of training. So it called up Glenn and they said, Glenn, can you, can you coach Addison? So he comes in and within like 18 months of training and Addison weighs 100 kilos, Addison snatched 170 kilos. And it's like, that's, that's the American record in 18 months. He cleaned 210 uh combat squat like 280 and and would train three to four days a week because glenn looked at him and was just like well your numbers are advanced but you're not an advanced lifter you're technically a beginner by the way you you know your body responds to training so three days a week you're going to snatch clean and jerk back squat and pull and that's literally it and and the progress was real it's crazy so what were the like it was always my objective at one point, and unfortunately, what happened, but was to get out there for one of these training camps. Because mm. um, I think you do it sort of like week, two weeks, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was kind of the structure and sort of like talk the process of sort of like the, the, the multiple training sessions a day, is it? Or mm. like how things were built up? Yeah, so uh, the way I understand it is it's in using kind of like sports science terminology, it's basically like a planned overreach, right? So uh, you have very traditional training, very traditional loading and intensity kind of uh, ramp and decline over, you know, the course of uh, four weeks, eight weeks, et cetera. And then when you go for a camp, it's specificity goes through the roof, right? And that you're snatching multiple times a day, multiple days a week. Uh, you're probably doing more training volume than you're used to, or at least much, much higher intensities. Yeah. And that's kind of when you see Glenn in his, uh, his kind of, uh, his comfortable environment because he just yeah. walked around. Uh, he's able to give some cues. He's able to uh, accommodate the weights as, as kind of the athlete needs. You know, he's not afraid to let people really push, but he's also, he also tells people when to pull back. Um, you know, that's where he really thrives and, and does his best work is in person because he, he understands what training should look like, what it should feel like, and he's able to communicate that. Um, so you, can, you, you do that, you kind of, you know, would randomly PR throughout the week. It's, it's somewhat unpredictable. Um, and then, you know, sometimes you're just sitting at his place and he's bored and he's like, hey, you guys want to go train? So I can't say there was like a set schedule. It was more just like, when do you feel like lifting? Maybe we do powers. Maybe we do hang lifts. Uh, you know, where can we PR? Um, and it's just a lot of fun with a lot of guys and, and girls. I think there was one woman. Um, and, you know, you live in like this dormitory. It's like this, uh, like pretty much like this really shitty hotel kind of by his like trailer house. Um, it's just, it's a wild experience. But yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, it's rural awesome. Kansas. Sure. Like if you've seen any yeah. of um, <laughs> Last Chance You on Netflix, like that's literally that's where that's basically it it's like flat fields for like hundreds of miles and very small towns and that's basically where glenn had moved back to after mdsa 
you know, crashed. Um, and, and yeah, it would be like two days, two training sessions a day minimum. And whenever it was three, like Josh said, I, I honestly think that was more because Glenn was bored and would say, let's just go to the gym and do something. And so like a light session for Glenn would be, you're going to go and you're going to do three doubles or three triples on the snatch and clean jerk at 80%, which is like not that easy. Like clean jerk, clean jerk, clean jerk at 80% is not, it's not easy for a middle session. Um, and he basically for each camp, he would have something that he was obsessed with that he would just force you to do. So like the first camp, he was very interested in bands and putting bands over the bar to snatch and clean and squat with. So we just did a lot of bands and pulls, isometrics and that sort of stuff. Then one of the other ones, it was just, he got obsessed with what would happen if you maxed your snatch grip deadlift, like every session. I think Josh might've been on that one. Mm -hmm. I can't, no, you weren't. Okay. So that was literally like, and we would put bands around it. So it would be, you know, I was like a 115 snatcher then. And so I would be doing like 150 kilos plus bands for a snatch deadlift. It was like 190, 200 at the top, something like that every morning and every evening. And like, you'd be grinding, your back would be rounding. And he just, he just wanted to know what the effects of that were going to be. So he used it as these like self-contained experiments. Um, but yeah, he always had something that he was kind of interested in, in trying to work out at each of these camps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've just, I've just finished playing around with a, a little four-week block with uh, banded snatch deadlifts. And it was... Uh, oh, yeah. It was interesting. It was like, it definitely, a, a lot of my problems lie that I, I decelerate too much from knee to hip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but straight away, when I was watching some of my velocity and bits and pieces like that, it made a straight difference. So I think a lot yeah. of the reason why I've started hitting what I've done that is because I'm now actually using my legs. Yeah. into my lower back and, my, and just sort of muscle my way through it so it's um yeah it was a little bit sort of glenn inspired uh, mm. i saw that you guys mentioned that before quite a while back mm-hmm. yeah i do remember i remember you guys bringing up on the podcast that you were always playing around with some sort of mad scientist style plan with him which yeah. is interesting well. Yeah. Mm. well one really interesting experiment he did a while back and you can actually see this online on the mdusa youtube channel is he, he, he was interested in uh, hypertrophy research, specifically with like animal models, like cats and, um, you know, avian models, so birds. And he, he looked at like how they would really gain a lot of muscle. And typically this was with uh, a lot of time under tension or loading for long periods of time. So what he did with the training with those really high level athletes is he would do, you know, 15 minute sessions 12 times a day, 10 times a day, where they would work up to like 75, 85, 90% repeatedly over and over and over. Um, and there's some podcasts where he talks about it. There are a bunch of YouTube videos, but he has the, book, some of the best weight. Yeah. Well, well, there you go. Uh, Just briefly. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so he had, he had the highest level, you know, some of the highest level weightlifters in the U S and he was running this like, like what I would see and can consider now are really just out out of their experiments uh, because typically animal models don't translate super well to human research. Uh, but it's interesting. He, he had the balls to take those risks. Yeah. That's, that's something that's admirable, but also like, you know, it's a good, like, to be honest though, it's, it's one of these things that I think me and Chris are quite lucky where again, sort of failed sports level on mine. So I think with rugby that we would, a lot of our S and C stuff and bits and pieces like that, you would be using, the latest models and ideas to try and push barriers and push things like that. Whereas again, with Mehmed as well, it's very traditional, but I don't see a lot of weightlifting coaching 
actually trying to absorb other ideas and areas. I know there was a big kickoff with the whole conjugate system when Louis had a lovely chat with a few people and voiced his opinions. But one thing with Glenn, you always did hear like him, him trying to open his eyes to other bits and pieces like that. It would be interesting to see more of that took into lifting. Like me and Chris are quite lucky where we are when we train in London that we're exposed to some absolute freakish powerlifters. Yeah, it's like, yeah. well, if you came in yesterday, what? So there was three people trying to, they all just wanted to fucking squat 240 plus chains on a camber bar. No fucking reason for it. And Asif's, <laughs> Asif's trying to, Asif came in and just went, oh, I was going to do, I was going to do two sets of 10, but fuck it, I'm going to do 300 for five by five. He's only ever done 300 for five. So like, Jeez. you've got a load of people, or you've got all these people trying to figure out like how to get better. But I think from, the rugby thingy, and like, I don't know if you've ever had it. And uh, Josh, I know you all have had like American football coaches like this. You basically get, just get told you're shit at something, and you need to make it better. And then that's it. And then th- then the yeah. coach just walks off. He just says, "This is shit. You need to get. You need to work on that." And then that's. And then you're like waiting. You're like, "Okay, uh, okay, I've got to figure it out." Whereas with like weightlifting, like here, it's very much, "Oh, you're bad at this, or you don't do this weird position properly, so we're going to get you to do exactly this to fix it, and nothing else." Whereas I think I felt better being like, "This is shit. You need to fix it." It's like, uh, "How do I do that?" I'll oh, look into this. And that was it. That's all, all you got told. So then you're with like a, a group of like 30 other guys. Well, at the time of kids and you want to get better. So you all figure it out amongst yourselves. So that's how all the different variances of methods, like mm. different passing drills people would have, or, you know, different tackling drills, or, like methods of way of thinking that will come about the same thing for in here, because everyone in here, I think there's very, there's actually very few people in here who would benefit off of a traditional program. Then you end up with people being like, Oh, I'm going to try this for four weeks and see if that works. So I'll try that. Or I'll try this far position or I'll try, this three-week wave or I'll try that four-week wave or I'll try this combination of training and you end up seeing some like, quite interesting experiments but because of that you start to learn oh actually there's not one way to do things you need to actually kind of like branch out and see what it is that works so that you can so that you can gain an understanding of how how to get better it's not like one size fits all yeah I see that a lot mm. Yeah, so like I say, for me, it was um, the, the big change for me was chucking bands and chains into my squats, made it that a little bit more exciting, but it massively crossed over. Uh, over here, I think Seb may have seen it, especially in some of the gyms that we've trained in as well, is like, it's just snatch, clean and jerk, squat. Mm. And they're missing a massive, massive, I think the, the, the whole of British weightlifting, they're missing a key where we could be opening and training, training with a slightly more open perspective on other methods and different ways to do stuff. Um, I know Chris knows I'm, I'm massive on velocity. For me, it's mm. like the, my method of using it is very poor to a certain extent with the app that I'm using. I'm trying to get enough money together, get one of those um, on-bar systems that Travis is using currently, the Flex one. But mm. again, we're in speed, strength, sport. Why are we not testing speed? Completely agree. We spend so much time with people who do need at times just to throw something heavy on and move it. But why aren't you trying to move 105% faster? Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily going to benefit you to grind a deadlift at 190 when you're not anywhere near cleaning 190. Mm-hmm. So, so I think we're, we're very guilty over here at times of not being expansive and open our eyes up to a lot more other methods that will work and improve. Yeah. Working. And I, th- I think yeah. the, the velocity type training is it's, it's making everything even more individualized from initially just going straight off absolute percentages to then doing relative intensity to then you know ultimately what you're and then and then using rpe would then be the next step and then the final sort of conclusion to it ultimately is can you correctly use velocity-based training for everything 
And to do that, you have to almost create a velocity profile for every athlete, for every exercise, so that you can start programming based off, we know that your one rep max moves at this speed. So instead of saying, we want you to do 80% a day for four triples, whereas today, actually, your one RM, we just didn't know, is actually at 90% of what it normally is, or maybe it's at 105% today, that 80% is going to vary in terms of the stimulus it gives you. But if you know that 80% of your one rep max day actually moves at 0.8 meters per second, then you can start programming. We need you to do three by three at 0.8 meters per second today. And then that's just a far more accurate way to do things. 100%. 100%. I see. I use, like I say, I use an app that's okay, it's not that best, but consistently, I know when I'm hitting a certain number and at a certain speed, I'm getting that. It's like mm-hmm. when, we, when I worked up to the, uh, the 123 over the weekend with Chris. I looked back at 120 and that thing flew. It yeah. absolutely went like a rocket. And then for some, that atmosphere as well, uh, training partners, which is something we can touch on in a second as well with Glenn, because I know that was something he spoke about. That 123 then just flew. I yeah. don't know what it was. <laughs> was like feng shui, whatever it was at the time, but that 123 flew like a rocket because I had the information from the bar, bar speed and the bar path. And then I just killed it. And then 125 again, that moved really, really fast. It was just me mm-hmm. being a that, that messed that up. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, the other thing like I remember Glenn when we brought it up with him and like the Q and A at the end, he said sort of like the best thing that he ever had when he was training, and, and obviously at Cal Strength and the Muscle Driver was the, the 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 training partners. And it's one thing that me and Chris are big on when we're at BD and other venues. It's very much that atmosphere and the the fire that everyone brings. Mm-hmm. You've always heard of the legendary cow strength sessions and some of my favorite videos of like Spencer versus um, Tom off blocks and things like that. Those two just go in at each other. Amazing video. That, that I honestly thought when you watched that video, those two were going to fight. Yeah. I can remember, I think it was it Spencer, Tom hit something, Spencer went and nailed it. And then you just looked, Spencer looked at Tom and I'm just like, oh, someone's going to get knocked out. Yeah. They're just headbutting the wall and stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's very cool. I love shit like that. I mean, especially from a rugby perspective, that's what mm-hmm. we were about. But with your training sessions with him and sort of like with that, did he push that hard about that internal competition against each other and trying to sort of like go each other into stuff? Well, I think what's interesting, and we just released a podcast with Travis Cooper and he mentioned that a lot of Glenn's programming um, was kind of molded by the videos they would record and how, you know, what was interesting for the videos and for the people watching were going, was going the maximum, right? Taking lifts to max, uh, using a lot of variations and, and just going heavy often. And it's interesting to hear that, you know, one, having training partners and, and pushing each other, that lends well. And then also to people watching, it lends well too. So I think it it did help dictate kind of how he programmed and ultimately what we saw from Cal Strength, Muscle Driver, um, and, and to experience it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, it, it, it's effective. Uh, Seb, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, I think his program was like a manifestation of how he saw the people that he coached and the people that he coached tended to be quite competitive. And, and so that's why there were so many 1RM attempts as well as him just believing that these, you know, max effort lifts were one of the fastest ways to gain skill acquisition in the lifts and then, and then strength through the strength exercises. But I mean, I, I know personally for me, like, if I, if I have someone that I know pretty well that I'm competing with in a training session, my training is so much better. Like whenever I've been able to spend a couple of weeks with Josh training every day, 
we go so hard it's it's ridiculous and we hit so many random prs just because the desire to not be second is insurmountable and you know we have that at all of these camps and that's what's so great i mean that that's what initially when i trained down in exeter for six years with my friends like that's basically what drove us to the point where we had guys snatching 140 and you know nobody snatching under 110 like everybody got decent just because no one wanted to be number six out of the house of six. Oh, fuck yeah, I can imagine. You know, and that's more important really than the programming that we were doing. And that's what Glenn, you know, I think that's ultimately what Glenn understood. Mm-hmm. I, I've just noticed personally, and you know, some people don't like it when you say it, but you know, I've coached probably more women than I have men. And I've found that women aren't as competitive in the gym and pitching one woman supportive. against another woman in the gym. Yeah. yeah. doesn't tend to work as well mm-hmm. as putting two guys against each other. Mm-hmm. And the women tend to often work harder but they do it through being more analytical and yeah. method-driven method than just through like, yeah. Like if, if we were all in a room training, we would just go so hard. It would be absurd oh, just good. because yeah. you want to talk shit because there's nothing better than talking shit and then living up to that by beating the person and being able to tell them you're not as good as me. Mm. But, there's, there's injuries in here every yeah. week because of that, of people talking yeah. shit. And now we have a rule. <laughs> if you talk shit and someone hears it, if someone says bet, then you have to do it. But like even yeah, if you fuck it, you've got to try it. So I think like, <laughs> what's it Adam did the other week? He was like, ah, oh, like, I'll pull 270. Like, I think someone missed it. So he went, oh, I'd fucking pull that. So then they went, all right, go on then. And he's like, oh, no, no, but not now, I'm tired. So like, well, no, you can't, you can't say you that. You've got to do, you it. Got to do yeah. it. Then literally, like, I'm pretty sure, like, he strained so hard, he hurt his, he hurt his balls. Like, that's how hard he strained. Like, he was on it. He was like shaking on it for about 10 seconds. We were like, you have to do it. You call someone out, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. He was doing, uh, got called out for a 200 kilo incline press, wasn't it? When you're oh, out no, 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 ask if it's different. Ask if called himself out on that. Yeah, ask but then he, he, taught, he taught his own tricep doing and calling himself out. But yeah, oh, yeah he, he, did see, one, he did 190 and then that was it. Because uh, with the nature where I am at now, where we're back in Chumsford, I, I train a lot on my own or with some very beginner style lifters that are friends of mine that, that don't really push me to a certain extent but now with me working more with running stuff like that I'm spending more time in London and it's been quite a coincidence as well that you put me in a room full of those killers I have to level up because I can't be a pussy anymore yeah. I can't mark a lift I've actually got to like not panda pull it and actually throw myself underneath it and I put that down to a lot of the reasons why it took me a year and a half to get that snatch PB which was already there but I could I was never held accountable to actually attempting the lift mm. It was if I was in my, the old gym on my own training, the, the atmosphere, the, the, the thrive wasn't there. I talked to Chris before the session last week and I'm, I'm going to snatch 15 and then wherever it goes, he goes, you're going 22. Mm. But this is not a debatable fact. You're putting 22 as a minimum on the bar. Ended up doing 23, but being held accountable and actually putting it on the bar and actually having to do it in front of everyone, that's a massive thing as well. So it's, it's an interesting one when you do, like you say, put guys up against each other I always I'm never going to be in the same category as him but I always try to right if I can get within 20 kilos of Chris today I'm happy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's little sort of different ways to push stuff and push things from there I think sometimes it even boils down just to have some just having someone there watching right so when yeah. Glenn would watch it's not even you're you're not even lifting against someone it's just like I can't disappoint this man who's seen Donnie Shankle snatch an American record in training John North snatch an American record in training. 
uh, Coach Caleb Ward to, you know, an American record. Like, even if there's no one in the gym, he's the only guy, you know, he's kind of leaning over his chair or something. His eyesight's bad. You don't even know if he's seeing the lift. You're like, I have to make it for this guy. Like, I have no other choice, right? Mm. Oh, yeah, mate, 100%. I, I remember um, it's been very few times. I mean, I, I don't – if I'm wrong, Chris, correct me, but <laughs> I don't think Mem's coached you fully into a competition yet. But I was at a, a Masters competition back end of last year. And it was, I was following myself, which is usually the sort of case for me in the British scene over here. And I was warming up in the back and it was everything on fire. I go out to snatches. I opened at 110, so it was quite light. And I, I completely fucked it up. And I've never seen a small little Bulgarian man get so angry in a matter of seconds. <laughs> and I, it's the first time since I was a kid playing at like a, a national kid level rugby game that I felt, God, the, dis- the disappointment. I went straight out and then smoked my next two mm-hmm. lifts. And even after that, he was like, you should be going 120. We should be doing 120 today. And I'm like, it was just to have that, even if it was just that, it's just those little moments as well when I have trained with men on my own, the same thing. Sometimes it is just having that little eye on you. Mm. Let's push you that little bit more. Yeah. yeah. People, I think people forget that it's a competitive sport and it's not just something that you do and, and tr- you, you know, you train to do. And it's like, you know, when you, cause I, I played rugby, not to as high a level as you guys did, but like you, when you start out, your coach is relatively competitive and like the L's, but when you get into the first team, it's like <laughs> it's savage. And then I imagine if you go to County and beyond, it's like the coaches are so on you in weightlifting. It tends to like a lot of the time the coaches don't have that level of competitiveness in themselves mm-hmm. to then instill it in you. And I've noticed just from now being in the back room at literally every level from like, you know, a random British competition to British nationals to, you know, the world championships and the difference in intensity in the back room is absurd. Like every level that you go up, it gets scarier and scarier to be there. Like at the start, you know, when you turn up and everyone's snatching like 90 kilos, there's just no fear of being in that back room. Like yeah. no one's, no one cares that much when you're snatching 90 kilos. Otherwise you'd probably be snatching 120 kilos by that. But you know, like no one's been in it long enough to care a crazy amount. And then you go to nationals and then it's a little bit more intense because people are genuinely training really hard and trying to be the best in the country. And then you go to like, you know, even just the juxtaposition at 2019, you guys were both there when it was the international uh, open as well as British championships is like the 109s and CPT was in the Chris Bowles of Thorn was in the back room like chilling and then Dimitri Tumac was opposite him with like a towel around him headphones on and just wouldn't and like the difference in those two in how they were handling their back room mm-hmm. in terms of how much they cared about their performance and, and beating everyone was stark and then when you go into a back room where like Lasher is there and Gormanassin is there and all of these guys who just want to like they just want to kill each other like it's so intense and the coaching is so intense and the competitive like feeling is just totally amped up and I think a lot of people miss that so for you to have someone who actually yelled at you in the back room it suddenly just reminds you like oh shit this is like yeah like this is the only reason I'm here like I need someone to yell at me and really want me to win and and remind me that I'm not just here to have fun and maybe beat people. Like I'm literally here to try and destroy everyone. Like it's just, it's useful to have. Yeah, and I think from a, uh, as four of us are coaches as well, it's, if you need to be able to switch between them as well. I'm, like I said, with me, I, I coach a lot of 
I say my jam within Ronan is sort of like the, the beginners and stuff like that. But we, we're quite lucky in London that we've got a really good uh, series for beginner lifters in the um, uh, London, uh, London Olympic weightlifting camp with Mike. And me and Chris have both coached people in the back room there to the platform. And you'd have the first couple of sessions are very much beginners and it gets to the serious level. But we could flip between the two. So it was, it was good to an extent to sort of like where my beginners and guys I was coaching and other lifters that I was helping Chris with, then we'd get to our session, me, Chris and uh, Dave, or a lifter that would train with Chris, all three of us just flipped straight over to that serious side and we would tear into each other. And that's what got me my, my first snatch and competition and things like that. So it's, it's good, I think, to be able to sort of like switch it. But yeah, Mehmed definitely taught me a new one and I'm quite looking forward to seeing him tear Chris one soon. Yeah, well, yeah, you can. T- I think you can definitely tell like who's had either like that competitive experience before, or who's, who's been trained for it. Because like when I think when we got to the last lower series, bear in mind this is like the end of the competition is like borderline competitive. So as in like it's a it's a beat a real comp, but it's literally just for basically Mike invites like ten guys to be like, okay, who needs to put in a qualifying total with some? So you've got some breathing room between this and national. Okay, you guys go in. Me and Dave turned up. Um, this young lad Stefano who's basically like it's what like 17 yeah. all of a sudden yeah but like Dave went mate he's going to beat us on Sinclair and I was like oh fuck off no he's yeah. not and they went no look at the list and I worked it out I was like this fucking this little shit and, and like Dave was immediately like this little shit's <laughs> going to beat me on Sinclair so he's immediately saying to like Stefano like standing there next to him going oh what are you going to go for your third he's like oh I might go 150 he's like well I'm going to do 171 so I beat you by mm. a point so immediately the shit talking starts and it's all friendly but Stefano PB his cleaning joke and he snapped on that day and then I think Dave got pretty close to be like no one was going to attempt anything like that if we weren't there talking shit to each other. Like we would have, I would have just, I would have posted four lifts, done my qualification title and gone home. But because everyone's like, oh yeah, I'm going to beat you on Sinclair. And then Stefano sitting there calling us both geriatric and old, being like, yeah, you're both past it. I'm going to do you both in. It's like, all right, okay, well, it's a bit, it's a bit of a different story now. Me, me they went uh, tit for tat on snatching. And I, um, I, I think I, I opened with 115. So like, oh, that's a bit like for you, isn't it? I went, yeah, I'm old. Let me just get one in. And then he, um, he tried to bump me, and I'm like, I'm not having that little <laughs> shit. Sit down. I'm going on 18 now. He's like, I'm like, go follow yourself. You're 12. <laughs> he, um, he's a he's a he's a hell of a talent that kid as well. Yeah, he, so. he's like, there are a few people that I look at who I think could be pretty good. In he's like he's right at the top. Josh, I don't know if you've seen him. Um, <clears throat> Long haired, 17 years old. Uh, how how much do he weigh? Is he an 81? Twig. He's like yeah. And he did like I think he did like a one sixty five clean and squat jerk the other day, clean seventy. No, he's done one. He's, mate, he's done. He's done one seventy. Has he done seventy? Yeah, like, from, from block. He's not like, crazy. He's, he's, not he's like yeah, a bit more. yeah. He's just like the only way I can describe it is you know like when you're a kid and you're just like you'll just jump head first out of a tree because you think it's fun and like you just have no concept of what danger actually is. Watching him train sometimes yeah. where like you'll see like I think it's normal because that's how I was and that's how I am. And yeah. then you'll see people when he misses something going like this, being like, Oh, he's gonna hurt himself. It's like he won't and also he needs to train like that, otherwise he'll get to the one forty mark and go, Oh shit, this is actually really heavy and I can hurt myself. It's like you can't yeah. afford to think like that. And he doesn't. Like, the amount of times where I've watched him like miss a clean, you know when like you miss it not by ditching it forwards, but you just put it in your lap. And oh, he'll put it yeah. in his lap and sit down and he'll just burst out laughing and then he'll just roll it off of him and he'll get it and he'll try it again. Yeah. Well, most other people will go. Yeah, most other people go. Oh no, that's I'm done. I'm finished. It's like no, he just goes. Oh, that was a bit stupid, and then he'll just do it again. Same mm. as like him clean and jerking in his first four flat in his cro- in his crops, but up yeah. to fifty, up to one fifty. Like it's just a different. It's a different level, and you can tell with that competitive nature when it's intense because being in a back room like that or like in a rugby game like that where it's that intense, even though it looks like you all want to kill each other because you do, it's enjoy like you enjoy it. It's actually enjoyable, and I think that you can tell when some people get into that 
not exactly that environment because obviously like British nationals or whatever isn't like Euros or Worlds when you're in that top 10 and you're competing. But even going to British nationals, I've watched like good male lifters and good female lifters where you think you're going to absolutely, on the numbers from training, you're going to absolutely smash it. They bottle it. It's because they get into the back room and then you can see they're, they're not used to having everyone busting around and kind mm. of like basically lean mugging them and people playing mind games with them in the back room. And as soon as it happens, they don't like it. And you can see they don't like it. And you can predict it. It's like, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go in there. You're going to put your opener up because you'll be, you get scared. Then you're going to go out. You're going to miss your first lift and you might get your third. And you can see it like part and parcel every time. You can recognise like the colour go from the face because they're like, oh, mm-hmm. fuck, I've actually, got to, I've actually got to compete. Then you can see some people where like they enjoy it. Like they, act, like, they actually like it. Like I think my favourite comp is whenever I get to compete against like a guy, Guy Chusey who trains a Cyril and Jack Dobson because they like competing. Like they actually like mm-hmm. competing and it's fun because everyone tries to shit, to shit each other up in the back room. Like, if I go and warm up with 110, I know that Jack will wait until I've gone and he'll just put 115 on and he'll do that. And then if I put 125 on, he'll go and put 127 on and warm it up to make a point of it. And it's, it's, an, it's like, it's a bit aggy, but it's fun. And if you're yeah. not used to that and you're not being prepared for that by your coach, I think that's where you will end up falling short. And you can see a lot of lifters, especially from smaller nations who aren't prepared, go to bigger competitions and they just, they just fall apart. Or they'll just pull something out of the bag. Like, um, Seb, I don't know if it was at the 2019 Nationals, but uh, when Jazz Wanchergill went against uh, Rooney, Rooney tried to go... Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, 2019. Tried to go 130 and bounce him and go 140, because that's part of what um, Jazz wanted to do. So Jazz just went, all right, and put 18 kilos on for his third attempt. And it wasn't even hard. He just went, right, okay. And just went, right, I need 18 kilos to win. I put on 18 kilos, and he just smashes it. Yeah. And it doesn't look like it phased him because he like he, he enjoys that. Like he's like he literally looks when you watch him warm up and you watch him train, he looks like a psychopath. Right? Yeah. As in it's like when his coach said you need eighteen kilos to win, he just went, Okay. Yeah. It's not even like warming up or starting to shout or getting worked up, he just went, Okay, yeah, just put it on and we'll see what happens. And that's like you do need a bit of that, but I don't know if you I don't know if you can build it per se or if you just reveal it. Like if you've got that in you and mm-hmm. then it just gets revealed by competition or if you actually can build up the tolerance to it. Mm. Yeah, I think some people are born with that competitive. I, I mean, there has to be some level of both nurture and nature in it. I can't imagine that it's entirely one or the other, but certainly some people have it right from the start. But, but I mean, just depending on where you're training, I suppose, and 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 again, the way that the coach programs for you, you can build that level of competitiveness. But you're right; it's it's so. We've never really spoken about it actually before on the podcast, Josh and I. But like that level of competitiveness is actually maybe something that's missing that we, we don't really think about a huge amount when we're, when we're programming for co- for athletes, um, but can, can be the difference between, you know, snatching 115 and snatching 120 or something like just having that little extra that like, you just can't stand losing. You just have to beat the people um, is a really potent emotion. I think well, in competition. One of the most effective uh, phrases I've used lately is you cannot do that. Um, yeah. and, and oftentimes I get the response of, I'll show you or something along those lines. And then they, they go and smash it. And I look like an idiot, an idiot, but I also appreciate that. Um, so sometimes you, you just have to read the person, right? Is it, is it that, that they respond to? Is it, you know, money? Is it you know, drugs? Kidding. Obviously it's not drugs, but uh, you know, something to whet the appetite to get them going. And, yeah. and that's what a good coach does, right? They read the room and then they figure it out. Mm-hmm. We're quite good at with, because me and Chris do a lot of in-person sessions with Ronan, we have a number of sessions a week where there's two coaches or one coach in there with uh, our athletes coming in to lift. And it's kind of like 
we give them sort of a green light to a certain extent. If you're moving well, we're going to let you go up and then go the yep. stuff push one push one against another and obviously add those bits and pieces in from there so I think again that's that's one big advantage when you do have that face-to-face situation where you can just sort of like you can read the room read read the atmosphere and stuff like that Chris Chris tried to sort of almost go me into 25 after my 20 and so sort of like from that I was like eh, I'll do 23 so he was right I probably thinking back now if I just manned up I'd have got 25 mm. Away, now at least you know, because otherwise you'd have tried 125 this week and you would have done what you did on was it Friday or on Saturday and then we'd be having this, this conversation yeah. a week later than we should. But <laughs> even like, I think I literally, I think you did 123 and I think me and you and went to the 25 one and you just shook your hand and I think I think I just said, what, what, what are we fucking here for? And you and actually said, wasted my fucking time. And then you went, oh yeah, fuck it, all right then. I decide, I think that's what it's got to be. It's like when you're in a team together, especially like with these like here, when everyone gets to wear like the same thing with the same team logo on it and you put people together. It's not mm. just an internal competition to be like, I want to beat my mate. But it's also like, I'm not going to lie, like when you and, what did he do? So he hit a, basically a snatch triple, four kilos above his like, his previous like one max snatch. And Marcus, is, this guy called Marcus is training with him and he's been back to back like long shifts. But he stood there and be like, we said, do you want to just cut it? And he's like, no, nah, like, I'm not going to let you and do a triple PB and then I just fuck around and just do 90 and go home. Like, so he tried like what 102 three times and he got it for the first time. But it's like that's what it takes. It's not mm-hmm. just being like I'm not being left behind and being beaten. It's also being like I'm not gonna let my mate down. Like he's smashing it and what, and I'm just gonna sit here like a like a wet flannel, just not just 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 kind of like make it taking up space. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's it. Whereas with the girls, like I think I've tried making the girls compete before. Like as in Zara, like Zara is not um, one of the owners here has noticed that with the boys, I deliberately try to make them pick pick like almost like arch enemies within the squad whereas the girls you put them onto platforms together and literally they sit down and have a girl they literally have to sit down and have a mother's meeting and they all make friends and they all talk about like what's happening that day <laughs> they pair up and like, they pair up against me so i'll be like you're not fucking maxing out today don't go any heavier and then they'll all go we want to max out we're going to max out so it's like getting them together is good for them it makes it a lot harder to approach but it makes it a good environment for them whereas the boys getting them to go up against each other like it makes them a lot more it makes them a lot more compliant. So if you say you're doing a, a uh, like a snatch three rep max, like Ian, if I said to you, you're doing a, a snatch five rep maximum blocks, and you're going to go, no, nah, absolutely fucking not. But then I pay you like Ollie Bog or something and be like, I bet you Ollie can do like five, or can do more than you on a five rep maximum blocks. You're going to be like, right, I can't fucking let him beat me. Yeah. No, my size. Do, you, do you know what I mean? Whereas with the girls, it doesn't work as well. But with the boys, like it literally just makes, you can make them do whatever you want or whatever they need to do just by being like, I bet you can't beat your mate. Or, I bet you he can do more than you. I think it comes down to, um, you know, like ultimately, at least is what Glenn used to think was that, you know, women actually made better weightlifters. Like they could train, they could do more volume. Um, they tended often to move better after a while. Their pain tolerance tended to be higher um, and they worked better with a coach because they would normally respond better to coach because they, they didn't have this kind of like weird ego trip that a lot of guys have. But I think in terms of the competitiveness, like, and obviously, like, I'm not a psychologist or anything, but I, I find this sort of stuff really interesting. And you can almost go all the way back to, like, just the fact that generally throughout evolution, women have selected men and men have tried to rank themselves in order to be selected. Yeah. And and that is so... It's Even though we have no, like, major use for that now in society and most levels of society don't act like that, there's something about being in the gym where if you put two guys against each other or a whole gym of guys against each other they're basically trying to work out what the pecking order is 
And there's something that is so strong in us for that. We want to know what that order is because we still have this deep feeling that it's going to mean something in the end, which ultimately it doesn't necessarily anymore, but that's in us. Whereas because women tended to have been the gender that's selected for reproduction, there isn't that level of competition between them so much. So like Chris said, you can get like, you can be coaching loads of women and say, do this or do that. And often they'll, they'll almost like by committee decide what they want to do as a group. Whereas if you get guys and you say it, they'll automatically think, okay, let's, let's compete so that we can rank ourselves. And then next session, let's compete again to see if the ranking has changed. And the drive to rank highly is like evolutionary backed rather than just this weird thing that guys have. Um, at least that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I think, I think it's like deep rooted in us to, to compete and self-select. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Mm. Yeah. Do you, think the, do you think at the top level, drugs change that? So obviously if you have female weightlifters and you put testosterone in, then is that then going to increase that level of competitiveness? Or if like the women who are most competitive are going to have more of a disposition towards that, so would the drugs actually end up making your female weightlifters more competitive, not just physiologically, mm. but psychologically as well? Mm. I feel like you would have to have two conditions, one where you just give the females drugs and then one where you just have like, women in the national environment with drugs because you don't know how much like their 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 income uh their family's like well-being all of that stuff plays into you know their competitive nature uh because i'm sure when it comes down to hitting world records like you have to be cutthroat regardless um but if you just have like women in a gym on drugs like uh, i have no idea mm. yeah i don't know and obviously none of this is to say that women aren't like I, I know plenty of women who do weightlifting who are unbelievably competitive. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking more like the average guy that I see compared to the average woman tends to be more competitive. But I don't know if there's like I don't I I haven't read enough on it to know whether increasing testosterone levels in someone would increase their competitiveness. Like I, I not not that I know of, um, but certainly like at that elite level, like Josh says, the women who make it there probably are absurdly competitive and far more competitive than basically any guy that you're ever going to meet. But to some extent, that's the reason why they are there. And if you look at, you know, any sort of any human quality, if you look at the extremes, you're going to find, you know, absolute freaks of nature, you know, at both ends, really. Yeah. The last thing I'll kind of say on this, and, and this is to your point, Ian, about uh, the whole squad everyday thing is what a good coach can do is he can make a program that exploits this, uh, but also has, you know, days meant for technique and recovery and then days meant where you kind of can pit people against each other and also understanding the recovery costs of the individual lifts. So typically with a snatch, right, you can go heavy in the snatch more often, oh, uh, snatch variation, but you're not going to clean and jerk to max every day or, you know, off multiple times a day or something. We're walking through for that today. It's just like, Oddly for me with my snatching, to give you an example, like my the leg strength's now there, it's all come through, I'm starting to see everything come from it. I'm working up these things and I, I say to people as well the way that I coach it is like I've slowly downloaded the cheat code for 120. I know exactly what I need to do now. And every time I get it, it's just I'm just recalling it, recalling it. I'm strong I'll admit I've got a bit of a dodgy knee in a minute, but if I, I push hard on the snatch, but for some reason on the cleaning jerk. If I'm sitting in that 130 to 136 area, I don't go any further. Because mm. at 39, I don't know about anyone else, but it's like, it's so hard to recover from, especially with 
my clean technique is awful. So every single time I'm catching a clean, that thing is hitting me like a freight train. So for me then to recover from it, it's too hard to push that to maximum. Yeah. So I'm sitting around that 85, 90% mark and just plugging away on front squats and mm-hmm. yeah. oh, And I know when, I've, when I need to hit that 140, 145, 150, it'll be there. But I can't pay the price of trying to clean up to there because it's too hard to recover from. Well, so, do you, would, you guys, would you guys agree with if your front squat's moving, your pole or deadlift is moving and like your other strength work is moving, the clean and jerk will be there. The snatch necessarily won't be there because snatching heavy is, that's more of a skill than clean and jerking heavy. I think you just have to get stronger and, you know, not be a complete shithead with your technique. Um, But with the snatch, like, you know, doing heavy no foots or doing heavy powers or heavy hangs or something, you just see more of a benefit and, and you can recover from it. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I would agree with that. I think with the clean as well, it seems to be like if I, if I were to snatch more frequently in whatever form, within reason, I can see like a benefit uh, straight away. Is in like my technique cleans up, whereas a clean, it just feels like whatever, whatever benefit is going to have of me cleaning four times a week instead of twice. Like the impact just doesn't. It, it's like it's like a one benefit for a two, for a two drawback. Like I'm just not recovering. Like right. like everything. Like even weird stuff. Like my front rack feels like shit. If I ironically if I clean too often and as well with cleans I think it's just a case of because it is so punishing especially if your clean mm-hmm. technique is very ballistic like um someone like let's say Lu Jun, his clean would probably well evidently has more longevity than let's say watch a rom now like as strong as he is watch him he catches it in a hook grip because it fucking smashes him and then he bounces it out that way but he literally looks like he's holding like a bucking bronco like this on his chest whereas everyone else up from the Chinese team is catching it standing up whereas a Rom now is holding his hook grip and it's smashing him in the chest and standing up like I would say that for me either way if I work on cleans or I work on front squats my clean will go up but I'm built like a stump like if you look at my angle on my back between back and front squat it doesn't make any difference but if I look at someone like the taller like lifters who would like Josh be built more like you if I clean and jump them too often like um, one of our lifters Liam who he's just got the longest ribs on earth. Literally, he'll wake up the next day if he does three clean sessions a week and he just says, mate, I can't do anything today. My grip's fried, light, my hips hurt, everything goes. If he cleans once a week, jerks three times a week, pulls and front squats the rest of the time, it's absolutely fine. And I think that's, I think that's it. I think it depends on who you have. I'd say just because I can clean three times a week and it improves doesn't necessarily mean that that's correct. But I think it would be better for me to just not clean as often, which is what I've gone, which is what I've gone through over time. I used to do it where Anytime I'd snatch, I had to clean and jerk, and I had to clean and jerk to a certain weight or fail, jail, basically. But now it's a case of I never grab a bar and think, oh, am I going to be able to clean this or not? Like, it doesn't happen. But mm. I do grab it and think, oh, is the jerk going to be there because it's more technical? Same as snatches. If I don't snatch for a while and you grab a weight, you think, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this or not. Whereas it cleans, like, I don't really know, unless your front squat's trash, like, compared to your actual clean technique, I don't know many people who pick up a bar and go, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to clean this or not. So, like, mm. as long as the technique's there, like, even if you just did one super light, let's say you're doing pulls, even if you just cleaned up to a certain weight, so let's say you're going to do clean pulls at 160 and your best clean is 160, even if you just did really nice cleans up to 120 and then kept pulling on top of that, I think that would be fine. But, yeah, man, like, the clean is very much just an, an exercise in strength speed, I think, not necessarily yeah. as much technique, whereas snatches are very, they're much more technical and the margin for error is so much smaller. But you have to be, you have to practice it more. Agreed. Mm. So, right. so might be sort of a, I think we've sort of covered most of the bits and pieces we want to hit on that to a certain extent. So cool. um, 
anything that you boys want to add in at all? Plug? That was a fun chat. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, yeah it was awesome. I say, anything coming out from Weightlifting House that people need to know about, or when you started another another page on Instagram for the shop? Yeah, I started that. That's just Weightlifting House store. Um, I actually had a little brainstorm of I was thinking I kind of want to write something to do with the eighty twenty principle for weightlifting. It was something that Glenn spoke about, but I never felt like he truly grasped. And I want to kind of expand on that. But no, I mean, uh, not, nothing particularly. I'm I'm still trying to convince Josh to um to write a book for us uh but getting to do that stuff but but josh is actually going to be helping out with a new project that i'm going to go ahead with in sort of first quarter 2021 which will be a service for coaches basically to provide coaches with a much greater direct line to people who know more than them and also a uh, a valuable community and dissemination of information that's coming out so that that's in the works i won't go into it too much but other than that, not a lot. Just doing, just doing what we do. Trying to bring out more products, more videos, yeah, that sort of stuff. The, uh, the you saw you went down to the gym the other day. You're keeping out as well locally. So yeah, yeah, that was in London. That was probably not too far from you guys. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. But no, thanks guys so much for having us on. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was really, really good to have you on. That that coaching service sounds like it will be like bang on. That's really well needed. And also, any anyone listening, buy the book. Buy the Glen Penley book. <laughs> Buy the book, buy the book, buy the book. It's very much, very much underpriced, buy the book. Appreciate it. That's cool. Thank you very much, guys. Awesome. Cheers. Hey, Chris, you're going to stop recording now.